Okay, here we go. I was just reminded today that we're about to hit our one-year anniversary of having started this podcast. So it is a big uh, celebration for me because it's been a full year of going through almost every Torah portion in the Torah and trying to give a unique and uh, novel interpretation according to the mystical teachings of Hasidus and Kabbalah. And I think that we've had a lot of followers all over the world, actually. And um, we've had over 1,500 listens. So that's a great accomplishment for the first year. And hopefully we'll continue to get many more. So I want to start with a big thank you to my good friend Chaim Chernoff and Jewish Podcasts dot com for setting this up and for encouraging me to do it and uh it's been a uh just a, a tremendous uh encouragement for me it's actually jewishpodcast.fm i don't know what that means but it's jewishpodcast.fm and they help set set up the podcast and they blast it out so it's an amazing thing all right and uh Let's start to take a deep look at Sukkot, if you're ready. Okay? You ready? Yes? Okay, good. All right, let's go. So what is Sukkot all about? So if you explore some of the various teachings about the Sukkot, we learn that we're in a very uh, spiritual world inside the Sukkot. For one, if you explore some of the laws of Sukkot, very interesting because many of the laws make it that you're in this room, right, outside your house, this hut, but it's not really a hut because according to Jewish law, actual, the, the letter of the law doesn't have to be really four walls. It could be two walls and a tiny little bit, so two and a half walls. And the walls don't have to really even be real walls. They could be made up of slats with space in between. And the walls don't really have to reach all the way up to the ceiling. And there's no roof. The roof is made out of branches and has to be that you could see through the branches and that sunlight can come through and just not too much sunlight. It has to be more shade than sun. So we're in this illusory box. It's not even really a room. And yet it has this feeling of a hut. So what's it, what is it really all about? And we learned that in the Talmud that there's a connection between Sukkot and the next world. What is the next world? Olam Haba. The world to come. And I want to try to give an explanation of what that world is. What does it mean, the world to come? And first of all, we even have to ask, what is that, that concept, the world to come? It's, it's not, doesn't, what does it mean, the world to come? And in Hebrew, it doesn't even mean the world to come. It's, that would be Olam Lavo. It's Olam Haba, the world of arrival. The world of arrival. So let's try to understand the the idea. You know, the, the Muslims believe in 72 virgins. When you get to the next world, you'll be rewarded. If you were a faithful Muslim, you'll be rewarded with some sort of a, a physical type of pleasure. Christians believe in eternal damnation, eternal reward. What does Judaism believe about the next world? What are we waiting for? So the Mishnah tells us in Perkyavas two contradictory things about the next world. First of all, the Mishnah says that it is better one hour of 
spiritual growth of tshuva and maisim tovim, of good deeds and repentance in this world is better than the entire next world. But then in the next line, the Mishnah contradicts himself. It actually says, actually, the next world is better because it is greater one moment of bliss in the next world than all the pleasures of this world. So which is it? Which is greater, this world or the next world? What the Mishnah says, this world is greater. One moment of good deeds in this world is worth more than the entire next world. One minute of bliss in the next world is worth more than all the pleasures of this world. So which is it? Which is greater? This or the next world? And the answer is, is that they're different. They're different. It's apples to oranges. This world is the world of good deeds and working on yourself. And the next world is the world of reward, of bliss, of pleasure, of the infinite pleasure, where we get to enjoy the fruit of our labor in this world. Okay, and we'll continue to expound on that idea. The Mishnah, another Mishnah continues and says, this world is compared to a courtyard or a, a foyer or an antechamber before the great palace. Prepare yourself in the courtyard in order to enter into the palace. So this is a world of preparation. This is the world where we prepare ourselves for the next world. How do we do that? Through our spiritual development, for, through our self-improvement, through our good deeds, through our mitzvahs. That's how we prepare for the next world. Okay, so keep all that in mind as we explore a very puzzling piece of Gemara, piece of Talmud. This Talmud appears in Tractate of Odazara, the laws of idolatry. We actually have a tractate devoted to different laws of idolatry. Right at the beginning of the tractate, it discusses an interesting story about what's going to take place at the end of time. And there's a conversation that God has, so to speak, with the nations of the world who come and they say, after game over, either when Mashiach comes or when this world is over and the, we start over and we all go up to receive our reward. And they come and they say, we want reward for everything we did in this world. Jalen, you with us? We're, uh, we're, we are explaining the connection between Sukkot and the next world. Olam Hava. Okay? There's some very mystical connection, as you'll see from this Talmudic passage, between Sukkah and the next world. And we started by pointing out that there are different descriptions about Olam Hava. Olam Hava, it says, is greater than this world in terms of bliss. But this world is greater than Olam Haba in terms of good deeds and repentance. Tshuva and Maisim Tovim. So somehow this world is the world of preparation and good deeds. And the next world is the world of reward. So now let's, um, we also pointed out that the word Olam Haba is paradoxical a little bit. Because it means the world of arrival. It doesn't mean the world to come. It means the world of Haba. The world of the ba, bo, which means to come. Come, like literally, the, not the world to come, the world of the verb to come. It's the world of comeness, of arrivalness. Okay, so let's uh, try to understand that as well. So the Talmud discusses a conversation between the nations of the world and, and the Creator. 
And humanity approaches God and they say, we want reward at the end of time for all the good things that we did. And God says, what did you do? And he asks each nation independently. And he starts with Rome, the nation of Rome, which we kind of understand from a Jewish perspective as the Western bloc, Europe and, uh, and the West, which was inherited by America. And the Romans say, we did all sorts of great stuff. We, uh, we built marketplaces. We minted coins. We, uh, we, built, we paved roads. And we did it all so that the Jews could, could, could learn Torah. And, and God says, Lie, you know, fools, you did it for yourselves. And then the Persians come next, and the Persians say, we built bridges, we conquered cities, we waged wars, and we did it all so that the Jewish people could learn Torah. And God says, you know, you guys did it for yourself. We know, we know the truth. So there's different interpretations of that. And something just interesting to point out is the Talmud says, why specifically Rome and Persia? Why are those the first two nations to come forth? And it says because they're both, both very important, um, prominent nations. And one of the explanations of why those nations are prominent is because it says that they'll both be around until Mashiach comes, until the Messianic era. So it's just interesting that the Talmud has a whole debate and it cl clearly says that Rome and and Persia will still be around the time of Mashiach. And there's a debate in, the, in another tractate of the Talmud about who will win in the final war between the West and Persia. Persia being, of course, Iran. So it's very interesting to see that conversation taking place. So, um, and it's a debate. It's, uh, it's actually undecided by the Talmud about who's going to win that final war before the Messianic era. So it's just interesting to note that right now, Persia, Iran, and the West are really heating up in terms of the confrontation between the two countries. So Persia really being the father, the, the um, Persian, the Iran will appreciate this, but according to the Talmud, that they're really the inheritors of the worldview of Yishmal, of the Arab world, even though Persians are not Arabs, they are the inheritors of the Muslim mentality. Iran will, Iran will really appreciate that because they do see themselves as the forefunner of the um, of the caliphate and of the uh, of of the Islamic State. Even though obviously Saudi Arabia disagrees and is in competition with Iran for that title, but Iran really is the forefront uh, number one supporter of of, of jihadism in the world and uh, in many ways is one of the most advanced Muslim civilizations and was for centuries, right? So incredible art and science came out of, of the Persian Empire throughout history. And the West, which is really the inheritor of the worldview of Asaf, who is another one of the, uh, the branches from Abraham, right? Abraham had two sons. One was Yitzchak and the other was Yishmal, Yishmal being the father of the Arab world and eventually turns into the Muslim world. And then uh, Yitzchak gives birth to two sons, Jacob, who's the father of the Jewish nation, 12 tribes of Israel, and Esau, who's the father of the Western world. So the war, that final war is between Esau, the Western mentality, and Yishmal, the Muslim mentality, personified by Rome and Persia. Very interesting. But this is all a side point, but it's just interesting to know. Um, and, and the Talmud is undecided about who will win that war. And they both have very different mentalities, right? The, uh, Esau's mentality is very much about eat, drink, and make merry, for on the morrow we die. 
enjoy the physical world, right? And of course, Christianity did shape the Western world in many ways um, towards spirituality, towards the concept of God. But at the same time, it, it, it succeeded for the most part in creating a dichotomy of there's spirituality and there's physicality and the two really don't connect which some point out is the symbolism of the cross which is a disconnection between the two worlds of the physical and the spiritual and then yishmal who's in many ways the muslim religion is the closest to judaism of any other religion there is spirituality but there also is engagement in in physicality but there's also many many differences between the muslim mentality and the jewish mentality the muslim mentality is much more disconnected from the physical world to the point that people are willing to give up their lives for God, right? Where the recognition is that God is the ultimate reality and that this world is an illusion and that we're so believing in the next world and what's waiting for us in the next world from the Muslim perspective, 72 virgins, right? Which is a very physical experience, yet that people are willing to give up their life for that future existence. And the Jewish reality is very much in between, which is that this world and the next world are both real. We need this world. Our job is not to give up our lives in this world. Our job is to live in this world, Al-Kiddush Hashem, to live for the, uh, to bring God into the physical. And as we'll see, that's how we acquire our next world. So then the nations say, Give us, give us, give, give us reward, and they, and it, it goes back and forth in the Talmud, and then God says, "But you didn't keep the mitzvahs that I gave you." God said, "I gave you seven mitzvahs, and you didn't keep them. You murdered, you stole, you did all sorts of things you're not supposed to do." So they said, "Give us another chance. Give us another chance." And the Talmud says that the Talmud says, "How could God give them another chance? This is the world of action." The next world is the world of reward. Once you reach the next world, you can't do actions anymore. You can't do mitzvahs. It's too late. Game over. You lost your chance. The Talmud says someone who cooks, gives another metaphor, someone who cooks on Friday can eat on Shabbos. Shabbos represents, of course, the next world. Shabbos is called me'en olam haba. It's a taste of the world to come. So, so we prepare on Friday for Shabbos. If you don't prepare on Shabbos, what are you going to eat? You're not going to have anything to eat on Shabbos. And yet the Talmud says, nonetheless, God gives, capitulates to the nations and gives them another chance and gives them a mitzvah and says, I'm going to give you a chance to do a mitzvah. You know what mitzvah God gives them, says the Talmud? None other than the mitzvah of sukkah. He commands the, the nations of the world to go build a sukkah. And the nations go and they build sukkahs, says on their rooftops. And then it says that God removes the sun from its sheath. There's something called the nartic, the covering on the sun, which you could maybe in a modern understanding we could think of as like the ozone layer or some sort of shield that protects the sun from being too bright. And the sun shines down upon these huts, on these sukkahs, and it gets really hot. And the nations get too hot and get uncomfortable and they go out of their sukkahs. And it says in their frustration, they kick their sukkahs. And the Talmud says, but what's the problem? What did they do wrong? We know that one of the mitzvahs of sukkah is that you're supposed to dwell in the sukkah as if it's your house, which means if you're uncomfortable in your house, you're permitted to leave your house, right? If you have a leak in your house, if it's raining, like we had terrible rain last night all over the East Coast, 
So we didn't sleep in the sukkah. We didn't eat in the sukkah. We didn't have to. We were exempt from the mitzvah sukkah because sukkah is supposed to be like your house. And if your house starts leaking on you, you better go to uh, a hotel for the night. And so too, if your house is boiling hot, you're allowed to go out of your house, go out on the porch, go go get some AC, go into go to Walmart or something and uh, cool off. But so they didn't do anything wrong. It was too hot. They were exempt from the mitzvah sukkah. And the Talmud says, but they didn't have to kick it. You're right. They were exempt, but they didn't have to kick it. It was some sort of test, seemingly. But the Talmud said a, sh a little while earlier that God doesn't test people. He doesn't come and give people some sort of a – he doesn't trick with people. He doesn't mess with people. It says literally on that page of Talmud, God doesn't come and, and, and mess around. So why did he do this? Why did he give them the mitzvah of sukkah and then make it swelteringly hot, knowing that they wouldn't be able to fulfill the mitzvah? What was the whole point of this? What, what's, what's the Torah trying, what's the Talmud trying to tell us? So let's, um, let's try to understand what sukkah is all about. What does the word sukkah mean? Doesn't mean dwelling. Oh, well, we translate it as a hut. Right, but it comes from the word schach. Schach is the covering that we put on the sukkah. It's the um, it's made out of some sort of natural material, like small pieces of wood or branches or bamboo poles or mats that we have that are made out of uh, different types of material that are woven together. So, um, so the word schach literally means a covering. The word in Hebrew, mas, mesech. Mesech is uh, described as a screen, a mesech hamavdil. It's a screen that separates between two things. Um, in modern Hebrew, a mesech is a TV screen. Also the word masecha, modern Hebrew word for mask. The word mask, the English word mask, comes from the Hebrew word mesech. It's a screen, it's a covering, it's a, something that hides. That's what tzchach means, it covers, it's a covering. But we find something very interesting, and, and this, this is a phenomenon that only exists in Hebrew, that sometimes you have words in Hebrew that mean opposite things. Same word means two different things. Um, let me try to think of an example probably will elude me at this moment. Um, eluding me. But we have a number of examples of words in Hebrew that mean two opposite things. So this is an example, such an example. Because the word sukkah means a screen or a mask, something that hides. But it also, the word sukkah, the, the Hasidic writings point out, comes from the word socha which is found in the Torah, that Sarah, Sarah, Abraham's wife, had two names. Her other name was Yiska. What English name comes from the word Yiska? The girl's name. Yiska. Y-I-S-K-A. 
So just keep in mind that the Latin, Latin took the word, took the letter Yud from Hebrew and turned it into a J. Jessica, excellent. Jessica, I was blown away when I figured that out. So Sarah Jessica, Sarah Jessica, Sarah Jessica Parker, very Jewish name, Sarah Jessica, Sarah Yiska. Name. That was that was Sarah's name, was Sarah and Yiska. So I actually really, because of this, this idea, so why is she called Yiska? So Rashi gives us two interpretations. The word Yiska comes from the word Socha, which means to gaze deeply. So one answer Rashi says is that everyone gazed at her beauty, so she was called Yiska. And the other answer Rashi gazes, says that she gazed with with prophecy, her prophetic vision it says that Sarah's prophecy was greater than Abraham's, and she had this gift of gaze, which is the the word socha, which is where the word yiska comes from. So I was so imp- I was so uh, blown away by that idea that I wanted to name my daughter Sarah Yiska. My wife was adamantly opposed. She did not like the name Yiska. She's like, it's a weird name. I'm like, yeah, but the name Jessica is such a nice name. She's like, we're not calling her Jessica. <laughs> we're calling her by a Hebrew name. So she was not into it. But then we named her on Parshas, um, on Parshas Noah. On Parshas Noah. Her name was Ty. Yeah, we gave her a different name. But I got the Aliyah when I was called up to the Torah to name her was the Aliyah that mentions Yiska. So I literally was about to change the name. My friend did this. A friend of mine actually, when he got called up to the Torah to name his daughter, he actually switched names. And when they came up, when he came, when they sent his kids up to tell his wife, because uh, she hadn't come to, to synagogue because she she had just given birth, um, the kids said the name. And their wife said, no, that's not the name. It's something else. And their kid's like, no, no, it's this name. And she was like, you know, he's lucky that she didn't uh, kick him out of the house for going back and changing the name. So I thought about it. I literally really thought about it that at this moment, maybe I could do a different name. And, but I realized that my wife would probably never forgive me. So I went with a different name, but I think uh, I was very impressed by this, by this idea. So, yeah, no, it doesn't come from Chaya Sarah. Different, it was named after my mother. My daughter was named after my mother. So different, uh, different idea, but, Parshas Noah has has Yiska in it, and that's when I that's when we named my daughter, and I was called up to the Torah at that point in the Torah reading. Okay, so so Sukkah means two opposite things and seemingly contradictory things. It means a covering, and it also means to see deeply. A covering prevents you from seeing. So, what is something that covers? while enabling you to see that covers but reveals so transparent something that's transparent doesn't really cover a veil some sort of a veil but how does that cause allow you to see a veil prevents you from seeing
maybe you're on to something. Maybe. Okay, excellent. Excellent. So I think you're both on to something. I'll share with you three things that I believe answer fit this category. Three things that cover in order to reveal. One of them is clothing. Clothing covers our body, but it reveals a certain thing about us, right? Your clothes reveal what team you play on, right? Your your values to some degree. What parts of your body you cover reveal certain things, right? If you're in the army, it reveals your your statue or the or your wealth or your your rank, right? So clothing is something that hides, but it also reveals something about the person. That's one example. Another example is not just glasses, but sunglasses. Sunglasses cover your eyes in order for you to see more clearly in very bright environments. Okay, they enable you to, for example, if you have really thick sunglasses, like um, you can you can look at the sun without getting blinded, right? If you have an eclipse, solar eclipse, so you can take a certain type of special, very black glasses that you can hardly see anything and you can actually look at the sun. So it hides in order for you to see more clearly. The word for blind, in Hebrew, a blind person in the Talmud is saginar, which is a euphemism, but it means too much light. That a blind person has too much light. And to a certain degree, we understand what that means because the light sh reveals, but it also can blind you, right? Blinded by the sun. So, um, so sunglasses is another modern, I don't think sunglasses existed forever, but Another form, perhaps, of sunglasses you could make is uh, of have black glasses with little holes in them or little slats, which actually can work as sunglasses. And in fact, if you have bad vision, if you're nearsighted, you can look through these types of um, glasses with holes in them, black glasses with holes, and you can actually see clearly. If you squint your eyes, it allows you to see better, right, because it's minimizing the amount of light that's coming in. Interesting, right? So a third thing that I believe is a um, is a great example of something that hides in order to reveal is a metaphor. What is a metaphor? A metaphor is if you take a, 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 a quantum physicist and the quantum physicist is trying to explain to you a concept to you who are intelligent people but know nothing about physics, or you can even imagine to a to a to an eight year old to one of my kids to try to explain quantum physics. So in order to do so, they have to take the idea and enclose it and dumb it down. They have to break away pieces of the idea. They have to make it really simple in order to make it tangible and accessible. So a metaphor is, is, is another um, expression of something that hides. It really is not the real thing, right? You could talk to a child about, bunny rabbits and rainbows and butterflies, but really you're explaining some deep concept in Kabbalah or in quantum physics. And so really has nothing to do with the thing, but you're helping to explain the idea. So a metaphor is something that hides in order to reveal. So we got a bunch of latecomers tonight, but it's good to see you all. We did, we did schedule this for 8 p.m., right? I didn't put the wrong time on. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, great to see you guys all. All right, so let's let's get let's try to understand now. Okay, you ready? We have a lot of uh, oh, it's all women class tonight. Um, Becca, you gotta just you gotta catch up, but the main point is as follows: the word sukkah. The word sukkah means something that hides. It means a screen or a mask, right? Because it's supposed to block out the sun, but it also comes from the word to gaze deeply. That also reveals. So we said, what's something that hides that also reveals? What do you say? Something that prevents you from seeing that enables you to see? Sunglasses. So we said sunglasses, we said clothing, and we said a metaphor. A metaphor hides an idea in order to reveal the idea. So what do these things have in common? So where is God? But, but why don't we see him? God is everywhere. Why don't we see him? The answer is, is that, okay. What what would happen if God were to reveal himself to us? We would burn up. We would cease to exist. We would melt back into the oneness. Because in God, there are no parts. So God created a world in which he hid himself. The world, word, world in Hebrew, olam, comes from the Hebrew word helam, which means hidden. He created a world of hiddenness, a world where he hides himself in order to reveal himself, in order for us to exist. Were God to reveal himself, exist openly, there would be no free will, but even more openly, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be here. We would burn up. So God created a universe in which he's hiding, constricting, concealing himself in order to have relationship with us. Right? That's the first rule of relationship. If you want to have a relationship with another person, you have to learn how to hold yourself back. Because if you share too much too fast, you push the other person away. You have to learn how to give in little stages in order to give what the other person is ready to receive. Right? It's not just when you're just giving of yourself fully to a person without them really wanting it, that's not called a relationship. That's all about you. Relationship is about learning how to constrict and make space for the other. Constrict yourself in order to make space for other. So the Torah is called in the Talmud the original metaphor. Because the, what the Torah does is it takes God's infinite wisdom and puts it down into letters, words, stories, laws, something that you can bite on and chew, something that you can understand, as opposed to the ultimate infinite reality of God's oneness, which we have no capability of connecting to. The Torah, the entire Torah is a metaphor because it it's, hides God's oneness in order for us to relate to it. Just like the world is the ultimate metaphor, because the world, like, we, like you so aptly said, God is everywhere. And yet he's nowhere. He's hidden and yet he's revealed. Because through hiding himself is how he reveals himself to us. You guys with me? Okay, this is deep stuff. So clothes 
cover our bodies in order, the Jewish concept of modesty is that we cover our bodies in order to reveal our souls. When we walk around fully exposed bodies, so then the world relates to us as bodies. When we cover our bodies, the world can connect to our soul, which is hidden underneath the body. So sometimes you have to hide things in order to reveal what's really there, what really is important. So when Hashem hides himself, when God hides himself, we exist. When we hide ourselves, we allow God to exist, to come out and be revealed. The God that's within us, the soul. So just like when God hides his himself, we exist. When we hide our physical selves, that allows the soul to then be revealed. Correct. Before Adam and Eve ate from the tree, excellent point, nakedness was not a problem because Adam and Eve were souls. Their soul was so dominant, their body was just a minute part of who they were. When they ate from the tree, they became bodies. Their souls became very much hidden within their bodies. So now nakedness became something embarrassing because now their prime dominant part was their body. And that's very embarrassing. Suddenly they became like, I went, just went to the zoo with my kids today. And, uh, you know, I asked my kids, I was like, do they look like us? The monkey, we we're looking at the monkeys. I was like, do they look like us? And they do look like us, but there's a big difference. There's, there's a big difference between, oh, it was still very fun. The big difference between monkeys and us is although they do kind of look like us, and we do have a lot in common, the biggest difference is that monkeys do not have a soul. They do have a soul. They do have a spiritual component, but their soul is not the, is not the real them. They don't have the ability to comprehend spiritual concepts like we do they don't have a they don't have a human soul a godly soul they have an animal soul and that's a huge difference animals don't have the ability to make free will decisions moral decisions they can decide what to eat or where to go but they can't decide what's right and wrong they can only only based on training or or their or their nature they can't go beyond their nature unless they're trained to do so right so it's a huge difference. They look similar because our body, on the bodily level, we are just animals. But on the spiritual level, we're a completely different world from animals. So when animals walk around naked, it's not embarrassing because they don't have this spiritual component that's being hidden by their body. Their body is what it is. That's why the word in the Hebrew for animal, behema, means literally ba. Ma, two Hebrew words, in it is it. What it is is what you get. What you see is what it is. But a human being, what you see is not what it is. Our bodies hide who we really are because who we are is so much deeper than our bodies. So now let's get to sunglasses. Sunglasses enable us to gaze at the sun. Too much light blinds. And on a solar eclipse, you need very thick glasses in order to see and peer at the sun. So the Talmud that we quoted earlier that says that in the, at the end of days, at the end of time, in Olam Haba, in the next world, the nations of the world will request another chance to do a mitzvah. And the mitzvah they'll be given is the mitzvah of sukkah. So we want to know why the mitzvah of sukkah. And then we say that the nations go and they sit in their sukkah and then suddenly God removes the sun from its sheath. 
takes out the sun and its glory and burns down upon them and they can't handle it, gets too hot and they leave the sukkah. What's the symbolism? So that same piece of Talmud says a few lines later in a different discussion, it says, what is the next world? So the Talmud says, Ein Gehenim lavo. There is no hell in the next world. What is hell? We talked about the world to come. Eternal damnation, eternal bliss, 72 virgins, purgatory. What is, what is the J Jewish concept of Gehenim? So the Talmud says, the only Gehenim in the next world, the, the only hell in the next world, is that God removes the sun from its sheath and shines down. And it says that wicked people are burned by the sin, sun and Sadiqim are healed by the sun. Sinners get sun. Righteous people get healed. So what's this, what's going on there? So I believe I believe the answer is as follows. All of us are in betweenies. Um, the the in the um, the writings of of Chabad Hasidus, it says as follows: quotes in the Tanya, it quotes a verse from Psalms from Tehillim in uh, Psalm um, Pei Dalid eighty four. It says. The sun and its shield, Hashem, yud hey vav hey, Elohim, the name of God. What, and what does that interpret to mean? That the name yud kei vav kei is God's essence. Revelation of the oneness of God as the source of all existence. The name Elohim as we've discussed in the past, it represents the constriction and the concealment of God. It's the God hiding himself in the world of nature, in the world of multiplicity, in the world of constriction, in the world of judgment. It's the hiddenness of God. That the name Elohim, which is a numerical value of Hateva, nature, is God's mask that God wears to hide himself. He hides himself from us in the world of nature, in this world of multiplicity, in this world of reality, of three dimensions, which hides God's presence in order to reveal. So that hidden mask that God wears, which is the name Elohim, is similar to a shield which hides the sun. The name yud ke vav ke is the essence of God, so to speak, which is like the sun itself. So when we... When the Talmud says that in the future God will remove the mask, the sun, from its sheath, remove the shield, take the sun out of its shield, what it's referring to is that God will reveal himself to us fully. He'll take away the mask that he's wearing, the world of nature. Take away the hiddenness of this physical universe and reveal that everything is just oneness. Wicked people will get burned by that light why because the according to the zohar describes mitzvahs as garments the idea of this world is this is a world to build your spiritual garments to build so to speak your spiritual sunglasses so that in the next world you have the ability to relate to oneness without getting burned up by it the more we connect to god in this world the more we'll be able to exist in the next world without 
melting in to the oneness. We're literally spending this our time in this lifetime and in all our lifetimes building our immunity to spiritual sunlight so that we can relate without getting burned up. So if you spend a lifetime, the next world is essentially you and God for all eternity. If you spent your life building up your relationship with God, your spiritual sensitivity, your refinement, so you are now able to appreciate that relationship in the next world when the mask is removed. But if you live your life as a body without developing yourself spiritually, without developing your relationship with the, with the infinite, so the next world is essentially damnation, eternal damnation. Not eternal because we believe everyone gets another chance, but it's, it's essentially you stuck and trapped in, in only appreciating physical when there is no physical. Because the physical world will be removed. It won't be there anymore. And yet you won't have the capacity to relate to spirituality because you never developed it in this world. This is the world of preparation, we said, the Talmud says. Preparation for a world of spirituality. That's why the next world in, in, in Torah is called Olam Haba, the world of arrival. Not the world to come, the world of coming. Because it's the world that comes literally from this world. It's born directly out of the work you do in this world. It's the world of destination. It's the world of truth because it's the world where ultimately it's revealed what's real. And the metaphor is removed. The metaphor of this physical world. So this is the world of preparation for the next world. The next world is the world of reward. Reward meaning the world of blissing out on the relationship that we built with the infinite. If we didn't build that relationship, then the next world is an incredibly uncomfortable place because we don't have the ability to connect. We don't have the ability to connect, and it burns because we can't handle it. Don't get scared. So, uh, yeah, so we say that Gehenna doesn't last forever. Gehenna lasts for 12 months, 12 months, which means, again, we're not talking about time, but it means there's a period of time that the soul has to be refined to burn away that physicality in order for that soul then to be able to appreciate spirituality. But we don't want to go through Gehenna. We want to have a relationship with God on the highest possible level. Yeah, so reincarnation could be a punishment or it could be just an opportunity for us to refine ourselves further, to get another chance to get it right. So the Let's try to understand the Talmud now. The Talmud says that, that the nations of the world come at the end of days and they say, we want another chance to do mitzvahs. And the Talmud says, how could they get another chance? This is the world to do mitzvahs. When the next world happens, it's too late. The next world is the world of reward, the world of pleasure. This is the world of growth. This is the world of spiritual development. How could they get another chance? Someone who doesn't cook before Shabbos can't eat on Shabbos. You can't. If you didn't prepare in this world, how are you going to appreciate the next world? So the Talmud says, but no, nonetheless, nonetheless, God gives them the mitzvah of sukkah. And it seems very contradictory. If it's no longer a time of mitzvahs, it's a time of reward. As we said in the Mishnah, that this is the world of mitzvahs. The next world is the world of reward for those mitzvahs. So how do the nations get a mitzvah? I believe the answer is 
this is my own interpretation, is that God's explaining to them why it's too late to get a mitzvah. He says, go build a sukkah and see what happens. They build a sukkah, and then God removes the sun from its sheath, and their sukkah cannot handle the heat because they didn't build their sukkah at the right time. The answer is that if you don't develop your spiritual sunglasses, it's too late. You can't do it in the next world. This is the time to do it. You can't do it in the next world. That's why you can't do mitzvahs in the next world, because the next world is not a time of mitzvahs. The next world is a time of reward. He's showing them tangibly why it's too late. And for us, the message is it's not too late yet. It's not too late for us. It's not too late for the, for the nations of the world. Now is the time to build our sukkah. How do we do that? Through define, refining ourselves so that the next world, we can appreciate the light of spirituality without getting burned up so we can connect to oneness. So that's the message of sukkah. Sukkah is a box that we sit in and above us is this this basically this roof that's not a real roof. It's a roof that lets the rain in. It's a roof that lets the sun in. It's a roof that you can see the stars through. And yet it's a screen that prevents too much sun from coming in. If more sun than shade comes into your sukkah, your sukkah is not kosher. The definition of this covering is that it has to block out most of the sun because it allows us to relate to the sun, so to speak, while not getting burned by the sun. This sukkah is an illusory room. It's an illusory hut. It's made up of four walls that aren't really walls. It's really two and a half walls. There's not really a roof. Why? Because the sukkah represents the world to come, a world that's not physical. It represents the reward we get after we go through a Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Uh, Yom Kippur, a time of refining ourselves, on working on ourselves, on, on trying to change and transform ourselves. Then we get a week to sit in our sukkah and enjoy the connection that we've built. You know that when you sit in a sukkah, whatever you do in the sukkah is a mitzvah. The Talmud says, eat in the sukkah, drink in the sukkah, sleep in the sukkah, hang out in the sukkah. The whole reality of sukkah is blissing out on your spiritual connection, whatever you do. And it's precise. It's the interface. It's a nexus between this world and the next. That's what sukkah represents. The coming together of physicality and spirituality. Whatever you do in the sukkah is a mitzvah. Do crossword puzzles in the sukkah. You know, uh, do, fold your laundry in the sukkah. It's, it represents the fact that, the, that this world, the primary purpose of this world, is to develop connection to the next world, to earn the next world, to create the next world. It's the world that comes from this world, literally, that comes directly out of this world. So though, that, I believe, is the message of Sukkot and, and all these different metaphors that have to do with the next world that we find in Sukkot is, is that that's precisely what the next world is. The next world is the world of relationship and connection that comes from the hard work that we do in this world to build and develop the relationship when it's not revealed, when it's not easy. And uh, as we said many times before, that true relationships are developed when you don't see the reward. 
when you don't see the connection, when you don't feel it and you just do it anyway and you, you work in the darkness, then you can appreciate the light. Then you can appreciate that sunlight when the sun comes out at the end of the night. So uh, I want to bless you all and all of us and all the listeners with a, a, a circus of connection, but ultimately a lifetime of connection that we can build our spiritual sunglasses so that in the next world we can truly enjoy and appreciate the connection that we've achieved. So now we will take questions.